Afternoon. Welcome to A Podcast Runs Through It. I'm your host, Nelson King, along here with uh, Dixie Hart, co-host. And uh, this afternoon, we're going to bring you an interview with John Meyer, who is the executive director of the Cottonwood Environmental Law Center. So we'll get to that very shortly here. Uh, The first thing we want to talk about is the election in Livingston. Yeah, and one thing we would like to, uh, first of all, congratulate Mel Friedman and uh, Melissa Newts. They both uh, maintained their seats on the city city commission. And uh, we'd also like to thank the other candidates who were willing to throw their hats in the ring and, and run for office. So that was a great thing. Yeah, and, it, you know, these what they call off-year elections are difficult because they, you know, don't generate the kind of interest that the usual, even the midterm elections did. But I will have to say that this time there was, it was a, what they call a mail-in ballot? It was a, yes, an all-mail-in ballot, so. And even so, I mean, what's so hard about pushing a, you know, piece of a letter into a mailbox, the turnout was 39.2%. In other words, of all the eligible voters, less than 40% actually voted. Not good. Not good at all. And I want to remind people that's one of the big reasons why a podcast runs through it exists, because we really want to promote candidates and issues and get people out to vote for the these the city elections, the, the uh, off-year elections, the midterm elections, but get people out to vote. And the primary elections are coming up, of course, next year. Um, we want to, this time, we want to have people focus on the candidates and the issues for the primaries, not just the general election. Right, so so you can, if you didn't vote, you can make up for it next time by voting twice. I mean, but what I mean by that is Both you can primary. vote in the primary and vote in the general. Perfect. Um, going back to John Myers and the environmental issues, uh, I just want to sort of set the table for him a little bit. Um, as you probably, most of our listeners are aware, that right now our regulations for air, water, and other climate issues are being rolled back. And uh, how shall I say it? We're going backwards in terms of environmental protection. Uh, Because of that, uh, there are people trying to do something about it, and there are not too many ways you can do something about it except vote. But uh, one of them is legal challenges. And because so many of our agencies now, both state and national, are being run by people who are determined to destroy the agency they're ahead of and roll back almost all the things that those agencies do, they're being challenged in court as one of the principal ways of preventing some of this. And because of that, there are literally hundreds of court cases occurring all over the United States. John Meyer, our guest, is one of those people challenging the changes in court. So with that is a little bit of an introduction. We're here this afternoon talking to John Meyer. He's the executive director of the Cottonwood Environmental Law Center, which I'll let him explain. Um, long history of being very active, obviously, in environmental issues. John, welcome. Thank you for having me. And uh, this afternoon, I really kind of want to go into with you, you know, how you got into this, what kind of things uh, do you do. We tried to set the table here a little bit to to see whether, I I think people don't understand 
that in this environment where our regulations, air, water, land, are all being challenged and being rolled back and so forth, and that there are lawsuits happening everywhere, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a lawsuit? What does it mean to get into one? Who gets into it? How do you do that? Um, and you can talk to it as an insider, somebody who actually runs an organization that does this. Okay, so how do you do it? And well, let's let's start with how you got into this, and and what's your motivation for it? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Northwest Indiana, and um, I love being outside. My mom worked at a steel mill; she cut slabs of steel with a torch. My dad worked full service gas station; he pumped gas at the station. And so my parents weren't around a whole lot. They were working to try and provide food for us. So my my brother and I and my friends, we'd go run around, and run around out in the woods and build three-story tree houses and race BMX bikes all around and just have a good time and cause trouble. And uh, I grew up wanting to be a park ranger because I thought that's how you protect wildlife because I was I bow hunting with my dad, and I, I love wildlife. I love being close to him. I love taking photos of wildlife. It's an amazing thing. And so um, in the fall of 1999, I had graduated from high school, and I came to Missoula to visit a friend who was going to school at UM. And we went out to the hot springs there, and uh, somebody had like a wolf dog, and it was snowing, and the steam was rising off these hot springs. And I looked around, and I thought, this is incredible. I'm never going back to Ohio. I'm not going back to the Midwest. And uh, I did for like three weeks a month, Get packed my things and came back to Montana. And uh, so I started school in uh, 99, 2000 at UM and got a degree in biology. And I started working for the U.S. Forest Service for the Flathead National Forest. Um, I studied biology at UM and um, I was considering, I was convinced, excuse me, I was convinced I was going to protect wildlife by working for the Forest Service. And uh, I started out as a botanist, and so there were big fires in 2004, 2003 in the Flathead National Forest. And um, so my job was I'd get dropped off on the side of a road with a map and a compass, and they'd say, go look for rare plants. And if you find some of these plants, we won't cut down all the trees. And if you don't find them, we're going to cut down the trees. So I was walking around one day, and um, this huge fire, I mean, there was nothing left. And um, I looked down, and there's this huge spruce tree. It was big, dead, and uh, there was a baby fawn with its spots still on it inside this dead tree. And at that time, I think it was uh, Senator Conrad Burns was saying, we have to log this place, salvage log. If we don't salvage log, it's going to go to waste. And I remember thinking to myself, if they don't cut down this forest, it's not going to go to waste. And uh, I decided right then to go to law school. And so I went to Vermont Law School, and uh, I graduated with honors, and I started... In Vermont, if I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I had an internship here in Bozeman while I was in law school and uh, came back in 2009 and started Cottonwood Environmental Law Center. And um, Cottonwood now, uh, we cause trouble for the government. Yeah, that's... That's like the goal every day is to just be a huge pain in the ass and have fun doing it. Because mm -hmm. when you get uh, the government excited about what you're doing, you're usually doing something right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
just, I don't bring in current things often, but the testimony by uh, Ambassador uh, Jovanovic on Friday, what she said, or somebody, what's that her? Well, anyway, said that if you don't, if you go after people who are corrupt, you're going to piss off people who are corrupt. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, that's how you do it. So yeah. you're part of your success is if, if you get the government to react, you're doing part of your job. So Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I think the second case I won uh, was near the end of 2011. Um, and we got this court order from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And it said that we had... Uh, my legal mentor and I from law school had stopped a $550 million coal railroad from taking some farmer's land in southeast Montana. They wanted to build a coal railroad and dissect the all the... River. Yeah, the Tongue River. River Railroad. Yep. Yeah. They wanted to take their land and build a coal railroad. Mm-hmm. And um, one reason why the coal railroad was stopped was because they didn't survey for sensitive plants. Hmm. <laughs> And there you go. Yeah, and so uh, Cottonwood just had our 10-year anniversary, or this is our 10-year anniversary now. So uh, anytime I question the world and how crazy things feel, I just go back to you can do a lot of good with the law, and uh, you can the natural world is here to help us if we let it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Cottonwood. I'll just use the name. It's Cottonwood. Yeah. Environmental Law Center is That's the full right. name. Yep. Do you use any other? Uh, Senator Danes and uh, Senator Tester just call it Cottonwood. Okay. Yeah. Hey, everyone knows who they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they seem to. Did so. Did you have other people that collaborated with you when you when you originally started out? Uh, so when we originally started out, I started with a friend. Her name's Percy Bennett. We started Cottonwood, and um, we were a pure law firm. And what we found is that people would taking cases to other law firms and the law firms say we don't think that's a good case and they bring to us and we're hungry for experience so we'd take it and not know what we were doing and we'd lose and along the way I did a bunch of legal research and I thought here's a good idea for a case here's a good idea and so I was living in South Cottonwood Canyon south of Bozeman in a yurt without running water and electricity and that backed up to public land forest service land and the Forest Service wanted to cut down a bunch of trees out there in Lynx Critical Habitat. And the folks whose land my yurt was on said, we hike out there, we hunt out there, we look for wildlife. We don't want them to cut down these trees. And so they said, we look for Canada Lynx too. And that's when I realized, hey, there's a really great case here regarding Canada Lynx. And so we won this case in the district court. The Judge Christensen said, hey, Forest Service, you need to go back and review your management plan to ensure that it's protecting Canada Lynx. Because when Canada lynx were designated, declared a threatened species, there was no critical habitat on any Forest Service land. It was on three national parks. And the reason why you don't designate critical habitat on federal land is because then you stop logging, you stop mining, you stop everything. But if you designate it in national parks, you can't do anything in national parks anyway, so nothing stops, everything's fine. And so... What happened was this woman named Julie McDonald, who was high up in the Department of the Interior, came down to the field offices and said, Hey, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you're not going to designate critical habitat for Canada lynx on Forest Service land. And it's like political interference. This woman had no background in biology at all. High-ranking D.C. official coming to Montana saying, There's not going to be any critical habitat for Canada lynx in Montana. And we found that out, and she ended up resigning 
and there were nine species that she tampered with the critical habitat designations. And so overnight, you go from having zero acres of critical habitat on federal land to over 12 million in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And when there's that new designation of critical habitat, that's when Cottonwood said, hey, Forest Service, you need to go back and look at your management plan to ensure that that is protecting these 12 million acres of newly designated critical habitat. Mm -hmm. And so we won in district court. We won in the Ninth Circuit. And then we won in uh, the U.S. Supreme Court. Supreme Court said, we don't need to rehear the Ninth Circuit. You guys win. And that's when Steve Daines and John Tester about lost it. And uh, they said, we have to overturn this terrible Cottonwood decision. And it was, oh, it's a nightmare. It's horrible for the environment. It's horrible for everything. And, um, yeah, that's when I realized that it doesn't matter what political party you're on. With the law, we're equal opportunity offenders. We don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. We're on here for the environment. And regardless of what you say, it all goes back to the biology. And so before we take a lawsuit, we say, is this biologically important? Yes, we think 12 million acres of critical habitat is pretty important. Is this, um, how is this going to play out in the court of public opinion? And that's one thing that we learned really hard on with this case is you have to have a microphone. You have to be able to talk to the public about what this means and what happened. Because the only thing that, when I talk to people, the only thing they heard is, oh yeah, some radical environmentalists stopped a bunch of timber sales. And really, it's this whole case arose from political interference. Maybe we shouldn't have D.C. politicians acting like biologists. Maybe we should let these D.C. politicians... Let the biologists do their own jobs. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I just learned. We have to continuously tell the public and educate the public because most people don't know that's how this case arose. Yeah, that makes sense. So obviously you're not in favor of the like the EPA ruling out science because, well, after all, it confuses things, you know. Um. No, I, <laughs> yeah, then, um. There's been a huge push to remove regulations, laws that um, protect our environment and protect what's important to us all. And I will say, I don't think all laws and regulations are good. They're not all bad. Like uh, last year, we, this year, last year, we, Cottonwood lost the case. We were challenging a 1999 law that was put in place by the Montana legislature, and it said you can net meter. 50 kilowatts of energy uh -huh. and so that net metering is the idea that you put you have a solar panel you put it on top of your roof and then when you're not using energy you put it back on the electrical grid and you get credit for that and at the end of the year if you don't use that credit you lose it well that's great 50 is great but what if you put 100 what if you put 200 what if you put a thousand then all of a sudden maybe your neighbor is not going to be purchasing coal energy maybe it's your clean energy because they can't afford a solar unit, but you can, so you start providing solar for everybody. And so we challenged this law saying, hey, we're entitled as Montana citizens to a clean and healthful environment. And if you are limiting the amount of clean energy we can produce, we can't have a clean and healthful environment because we're required to consume fossil fuels. Yeah, the alternative would be to burn coal or... Yeah. Yeah. And so we went to court and tried to strike down that law and say, Montana citizens should be able to produce as much clean energy as they want. And the judge said, uh, I can't 
I can't do that for you. That's the province of the legislature. So that was uh, that was where I started to really see the outer limits of what you can do with the law. Because the law is obviously very powerful, mm-hmm. but it's got limits. And so that was one instance where I saw kind of the limits of what you can do with the law mm-hmm. and why it's important to get involved in politics and things like that. Now, do you do... Obviously, you do court cases and you take the law to a specific case or something like that. Yeah. But, but you're dealing with regulations and laws and, and mm-hmm. in some cases just rules and conventions. Um, I've always heard that the, one of the biggest problems from a point of view of good laws is getting them enforced. Do you also come at it from that angle that, yeah, the law's in the books. Yes, you recognize the law, but you don't spend any money on it or you don't enforce it or... Sure, yeah. Um, right now, Cottonwood has two lawsuits in the most important grizzly bear corridors. So the Yellowstone population of grizzly bears is not, it's by itself, it's isolated. And so we're trying to get that Yellowstone population connected with the glacier population. There's concerns about inbreeding and all this other stuff. And so if we can create a corridor, then those populations can connect, and ultimately we want to see grizzly bears recovered and taken off the endangered species list. Mm. And right in the heart of these grizzly bear corridors, domestic sheep graze, and like in the Gravelly Mountains of southwest Montana. There's about ten or 15,000 domestic sheep graze there every summer. And a domestic sheep is like an oversized marshmallow for grizzly bear. They're just like, they're slow-moving, massive, like free food, you know? Mm. Why would you chase an elk that can run really fast when you go walk up to a sheep and eat that and so we've filed a freedom of information act request several years ago and found out that the sheep herders were killing grizzly bears and we filed some lawsuits and asked the court to stop the domestic sheep grazing the court said uh, we agreed they didn't do the correct analysis on allowing the sheep grazing to continue but i'm not going to stop that for now and so right now that case is um, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm-hmm. We've got... Yeah, let's just kind of stop right there and say, how did that particular case come up? I mean, how did you... and Who started it? Where did it come from? What did you do about it? I assume you learned about the sheepers killing grizzly bears. Um, frame that a little bit for us. Sure. So uh, in that case, Cottonwood Environmental Law Center is representing Gallatin Wildlife Association as well as Yellowstone Buffalo Foundation. They're two small volunteer, all nonprofit groups out of Bozeman. And those guys have been working to protect grizzly grizzly bears and reintroduce bighorn sheep in that area for years. Um, You cannot reintroduce bighorn sheep into the area because there's domestic sheep. The domestic sheep carry pneumonia. It's easily transmitted to bighorn sheep. You can lose a whole herd of bighorn sheep in a couple weeks as soon as they come into contact with the domestic sheep. So there's a mountain in the gravelies called Bighorn Mountain. And our goal is to get bighorn sheep on Bighorn Mountain. But we can't do that because the federal government allows domestic sheep to graze there. The state of Montana has said they would reintroduce bighorn sheep into the gravelly mountains if the domestic sheep were not grazed there. But they're not willing to go as far as to sue the federal government to try and get the domestic sheep out. So that's where we step up and say, hey, here's the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks biologist saying they would reintroduce bighorn sheep if the domestics weren't here. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to bat for the state agency in federal court and try and do something good for the environment. What what constitutes your due diligence then? What are you looking at before you actually 
take your your case to court. Um, yeah, so um, that's one of the perks of being an environmental attorney is that we always go out there, hike around, take photographs of the area, really get to know that area. And when you are on the landscape, when you become a part of that landscape, you're just willing to fight that much harder for that area. Because you know there's some lawyer in D.C. that's never been there, doesn't care, just wants to get out of the office on a Wednesday afternoon. And when you have that place in your blood, you're just you're in it to win. And you're just willing to give everything. So that's the first step is always go to these areas that you want to protect first. Mm-hmm. Hike around, make sure you know the area. You can talk to the judge. Hey, here's this area. I can show you on the map. And mm-hmm. judges want to know. Like I've pulled up maps with judges before. So they appreciate you knowing the geography of the area as well. And then you file what's called a Freedom of Information Act request. And if it's grizzly bears you want to protect, you say, hey, federal government, we'd like to know all the instances of grizzly bears killing domestic sheep or sheep herders killing grizzly bears. We want to know all the dirt that's not public. And once you get all that information, then you can say, okay, the environmental documents allow the federal government to kill one grizzly bear per year. And they've already killed two, but they never did any new analysis. And so go back and do some new analysis. That's just one example of what mm-hmm. could, yeah, yeah. So then, in by doing the background research, mm-hmm. you, you eventually frame your case, right? Yep. Uh, and then what do you do? You file it, or yeah. So you um, you file it, and well, I Cottonwood mainly works in federal district court. You have you're either in state court or federal court, and so the vast majority of our cases are against the federal governments. So we're in federal court. And so you file the suit electronically, and then it gets served to the federal government in Washington, D.C., and they have some attorneys and billings as well. Okay. Then in these kind of, you know, I won't say they're open-ended, but these habitat cases, which I I, I think you would say they're specific. I mean, habitat Mm -hmm. is a relatively difficult environmental issue to deal with legally. Um, What do you do in terms of... Do you get help? Do you find other organizations, other people? I mean, do you put together like expert witnesses or that kind of thing? Uh, um, so we we typically represent other organizations. Sometimes just Cottonwood goes alone. Um, and those other organizations have staff that are experts in biology. Gallatin Wildlife Association has uh, professors that used to teach at University of Montana. They have uh, folks who used to work for the Forest Service and the BLM. So they're all very well versed in how the federal government operates. Um, you don't typically have to retain experts per se um, because all these decisions are based on what's called an administrative record. And so the federal government says that we're going to allow domestic sheep to graze in the gravelly mountains and we have to study the impacts of all these sheep so here's all we're going to look at a hundred different documents and we're going to lay them all out and then your lawsuits basically based on what all the documents they looked at and so you can say on page 38 the footnote says uh grizzly bears and sheep don't mix and your environmental analysis says grizzly bears and sheep mix just fine so your decision is arbitrary and capricious it doesn't match up here when your own scientific documents say one thing and you're doing something else, it's not justified by your own science. That's a no-go. Mm-hmm. So part of the prep is you get get together your arguments and people that are going to make the arguments 
Now, when you make the arguments, I assume you got at least two audiences, maybe three, right? You got the judge, public opinion, and your opposition, and probably others, but those would be certainly the three big ones. Um, how do you, for example, not every expert witness is a good talker. Mm -hmm. They might be fine talking to the judge, but they're awful as a public representative. Do you make those kind of judgments? I mean, who knows about your expert witnesses, for one thing? And then who decides and how do you decide who's going to come in and bring your, you know, expose your evidence and that kind of stuff? How do you, in other words, how do you stage manage your court? Sure. So um, typically we, a case will go to court for a half an hour, maybe an hour once per year. Uh, you don't go to court a whole lot. And the judge has very legalistic questions. He doesn't have um, expert questions. There's typically not expert witnesses because, again, it's all based on their own scientific documents. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, we'll go with that. Now, how much explaining do you need to do to the judge? I mean, I assume that some of these judges you get know quite a bit about the topic, but some won't, or at least they don't know anything about this specific topic. How much education do you have to get into? Uh, we start from the very beginning acting as if um, this judge has never heard an environmental case, doesn't know anything about what we're talking about. So the main laws that we usually use are the National Environmental Policy Act and uh, the Endangered Species Act. And so we just assume that the judge doesn't has never heard a NEPA case or an ESA case before. We don't use acronyms. We just say the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA started in the 70s, was designed to protect the environment, and that requires the Forest Service, in this case, to tell the public about its significant impacts of domestic sheep grazing or cutting down trees or whatever. The NEPA, and I don't know if you know this, NEPA does not require, there's not a hard mandate. There's not like, there's no substance to it. it you, can, you can go and cut down every tree on the Gallatin National Forest under NEPA. There's no, NEPA doesn't say, you know, all it says is that you have to tell the public what the impacts are going to be. So if you tell the public, we're going to go and clear cut the entire Gallatin National Forest, uh, it's going to be a mess for erosion, it's going to be a mess for wildlife, they're not going to have any hiding cover, no one's going to like it, it's going to be horrible. They're still allowed to do that under NEPA. As long as they fully disclose what the impacts are, they're allowed to do it, no matter how bad it's going to be. And so the whole point of NEPA is tell the public what the impacts are. So the court of public opinion is really primary then. Yeah. yeah. And they the government knows that, and they constantly try and um, water down what the impacts are going to be, kind of sweep it under the rug. And so that's where the Freedom of Information Act request comes in. We filed a FOIA request about five years ago against a federal research facility in southwest Montana called the U.S. Sheep Experiment Station. And so they grazed domestic sheep on the Continental Divide at almost 10,000 feet in elevation, thousands of domestic sheep. And these grizzly bears are going in the area and eating them. And we got a FOIA response saying grizzly bears are chasing the sheep herders. So they're not eating sheep, they're chasing sheep herders. So they're putting human life at risk. Mm -hmm. And they never said anything about that in their environmental impact statement. And so we've stopped domestic sheep grazing for over five years now because they never disclose the fact that grizzly bears are chasing sheep herders after they kill the sheep because they want to keep everything else away. 
That brings up the issue of opposition, right? Yeah. Obviously, the sheep herders aren't going to like you stopping their business. And I'm quite certain that there are certain elements of the political world that are going to say, oh, they're against capitalism or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, how do you deal with that, both in the court and out of the court? I mean, it's... Yeah, so um, I try and be as reasonable as I can. I know that Steve Daines thinks that Cottonwood is a bunch of radical environmentalists, but realistically, I try to be as reasonable as I possibly can. Before we file these livestock cases, we reach out to the permit holder and we say, um, we know you've been here a long time and uh, we can appreciate that. And we don't want to, we don't want to go to court and stop everything. And, you know, your whole livelihood's ruined. We'd like to sit down at a table and talk about if we can find some sort of economic compensation. Say you can go and graze on private land. You can keep grazing sheep or cows or whatever. And we can protect grizzly bears and hikers and all that good stuff. There's, we do believe there's a middle way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be zero sum, you know. And um, so we we tell that to the judge. The judge wants to know that you're not some crazy radical. And so they appreciate the fact that we're trying to reach out. And Montana right now is, we're going through a huge transition. Um, so many people are moving to Montana. And they're not coming here for our clear cuts. And they're not coming here to look at our cows. They want to see bison. They want to hunt. They want to fish. And those things are not always compatible with livestock and logging. And so we've tried really hard to say, hey, we want to sit down with you. And if you don't want to sit down, we're going to have to go to court. It's your choice. And that's, um, that's never easy. It's just not easy or fun. Um, yeah, you usually wind up with, with politicians taking the side of a specific industry or a specific oh, commercial interest, shall we say, and then you're trying to argue the public, public good, right, the more broad issue. I mean, it's the same thing with habitat, right? You save habitat for all kinds of good reasons, mm -hmm. but actually developers want specific cuts on that habitat to do certain things. Yep. And that's where you wind up in court on it because they won't, yeah. I get the sense that some of the judges in Montana know where we're going as a state, but they don't want to be the ones to say, um, no, you have to stop. So uh, they'll say the agency broke the law, but we're not going to stop the livestock grazing on public land. They can continue, the livestock permit holder can continue to kill public wildlife on public land because that's what they've always done. And that's got to be very uncomfortable for a judge. I know it's uncomfortable for me to ask a judge to stop it, so I'm sure it's uncomfortable for him to say, you got to stop. And so what he does is he says, yeah, they broke the law. I'm not going to stop it. And so now we're in the Ninth Circuit on some of these livestock cases, asking the Ninth Circuit, because these folks are from all over the West, and they don't have, they're not Montana-centric. They're not, they don't live in these towns where these folks, you know, and I'm hoping that they'll see that we've tried to be as reasonable as we can, saying, hey, let's sit down and talk about some sort of economic transition for you. It's just, yeah, it's painful. I mean, it's a, that's where our state's going for better or worse. Mm -hmm. So basically you're saying even at the legal level, you have to work out the details. Absolutely. That usually the, the solutions, if you have one, are in the details. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
What part of this do you find the most interesting? What, what, um, um, uh, maybe all of it, but... <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I was thinking about this last night. Uh, why do I practice law? And I remember being in constitutional law class in Vermont and a professor saying, um, you're either a social engineer or you're a leech. And that's what I love about all the cases Cottonwood takes. We're constantly trying to change the entire system. We don't want to just take one small case and win and get paid a little bit of money and go on. We're trying to completely change the entire Western landscape. And so that's why we try to, you know, we're trying to completely change the way livestock are grazed on public land through a couple of our cases. We're trying to lift the cap on the amount of renewable energy that can be generated in Montana. We're trying to, right now, allow Yellowstone bison to roam freely across the entire state of Montana. That would bring in more tourist dollars. That would bring in more hunting opportunities. Everyone would be happy with that. So we're constantly trying to think about how can we not just win this one case, but we want to set precedent that can be used widely across the board. Yeah, and setting so setting that up for yourself, that's where you find the most interest? I mean, it's just... Yeah, trying That's to the, the intellectual challenge or whatever you look for there. Yeah, yeah, make mm -hmm. make change the largest mm -hmm. scale possible. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, where are you finding the most resistance to that? Um, the livestock industry. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Nate and I, I can't blame them. They've been here a hundred, a hundred and fifty years. I got one case where permit holders have been using Forest Service land since before it was before the U.S. Forest Service existed. So you can't blame them, but at the same time, you don't have a right. It's public land. It's owned by the public. It's owned by you, me, everybody. So you don't have a right to go out there and kill grizzlies. It's not your land. It's all of ours. We all pay it. And so the most frustrating part, and you get me fired up, is that um, to graze a cow and a calf pair on public land, it costs $1.35. You take that same cow and calf and put them on private land, and it costs between twenty and thirty dollars per month. And so these guys are just ripping off the public. They're getting huge subsidies. They're killing our wildlife. It's just this huge sweetheart deal that nobody knows about. And they try and play it off like, "Oh, we've got our business and we've been here for a long time," and playing victim. And it's like this kills me. Mm -hmm. They've been at the public trough for a and long don't want time. to admit it. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that's, yeah. a, that's a huge issue with the Yellowstone bison mm -hmm. because it used to be that we couldn't let bison out of Yellowstone Park because of this disease called brucellosis, mm -hmm. which causes cattle to abort fetuses. And the truth is that people came from Europe, brought cows from Europe, carrying brucellosis. The brucellosis was then transmitted to wildlife. There has never once been a documented occurrence of a Yellowstone bison transmitting brucellosis to a cow in the wild. So why the brucellosis scare? Because then you don't have to talk about the cost of grazing. These guys just don't want bison competing for grass on public land because it gets such a great deal. Why would you want to pay 20 or $30 for a cow and a calf when you can pay $1.35? Well, we can't do that if there's a bunch of bison out there. So let's just scare everybody and keep the bison in Yellowstone Park. So that's what we're going to do in December. I'm going to Seattle to argue the case in front of the Ninth Circuit to try and explain to these folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's one of the areas they don't want to talk about. The other is markets. 
I remember reading somewhere and being astonished that Montana used to be the biggest sheep producer in the world. That's over 6 million sheep here. It was around 1890, 1900, something like that. I don't know what it's now, but it's a tiny fraction of that. Why? Because the market's changed, mm -hmm. right? And they just stopped raising sheep in Montana, right? I mean, <laughs> that was a force that just made them do it. They just went that way. Well, you're arguing that nature, our environment, the habitat, is part of that. It's, it's in effect, its own market influence, or it should be in a real world. It definitely is. Tourism is now the number one driver of Montana's economy. Hmm. I think it brought in about $7 billion last year to the state of Montana, according to Governor Bullock's office. In 1900, there were over 100,000 bighorn sheep in the state of Montana. Today, fewer than 6,000 remain. And the reason why we don't have a good... Uh, reintroduction program is because of the domestic sheep. And so we're hoping that we can win this case and get some wilds back on the landscape because it's part of this um, awakening in terms of restoring what's natural and what's good to Montana. So, yeah, Dixie? Yeah, I was just going to say um, about land leases and like the BLM land leases and what it does, particularly at eastern Montana, where, you know, the prairie is so fragile, and you can you can just drive back there and see which which land is under a uh, BLM lease, and because it's so overgrazed, there's just no grass left on it, and so you know, are you doing any work about that? Of um, just reinforcing the regulations about the amount of grazing that's allowed with these leases. Um. So we're not trying to reduce the numbers of cows on these allotments. We're trying to remove all cows from the allotments. Mm. Um, because, again, once we remove the cows, we can get wildlife back on the landscape. And we're trying our hardest to work with these permit holders, but it doesn't always work. So you're completely against the BLM land leases, grazing leases? I think that the BLM needs to raise its costs. Again, a dollar thirty-five. That, so in 1978, Congress passed this law, the Public Range Land Information Act. And it says that their cows are overgrazing the western U.S., and we need to set a limit on the dollar amount that we charge. And they said the lowest limit we can charge is $1.25 per month for a cow and a calf. And so that was 1978. You can charge $1.25 the lowest. Today, they charge $1.35, 10 cents more. Since 1978, for a cow and a calf, you go to private land, it's 20 to $30. It's crazy. And so what we need is the Forest Service and the BLM to start charging. Everyone loves to talk about the market. Let's talk about the market in the livestock context. Start charging market prices for our public land. Stop destroying our public land. It's that easy. Stop devaluing our land. Start protecting our wildlife. So... There's got to be a huge resistance on that. I think some of it's education. I think most yeah. people just don't know. Yeah, I'm sure the, the public, I think, would be largely in agreement with that. Um, it's just common sense. But the Montana Stock Growers Association is... Uh, Even a libertarian a, should agree with that. Well, they should. But what does Mr. William Perry Pendley think about it? I haven't asked him. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who don't know, William Perry Pendley is... 
been appointed as the head of the BLM. Uh, he's a man who has openly and continually said he wants to do away with the BLM and with any kind of public land, period. Yeah. So how does that affect your your environment of working? Um, I think that it's making people wake up to what we're losing, what we're uh, about to lose. I think it's making people who normally don't get involved in the political process start speaking up and getting involved and saying, hey, we like our public land and we don't want to get rid of it. So so there again, you're looking more at legislative change than and public advocacy rather than just trying to s- lawsuits in the court system. So do you do you actually uh, lobby the Montana legislature or the, no, the no. federal government? No. I, uh, I met Steve Danes once in the airport. And uh, I asked him when he was going to have a town hall. And he said, <laughs> have you been to our tele-town halls? And I said, no, I wasn't invited. <laughs> and uh, But I said, I don't, I don't think you're going to have a town hall. And, uh, and then I asked him, it was right when he was trying to change the Endangered Species Act in response to our lawsuit that we won in the Ninth Circuit and Supreme Court. I said, you're not going to change the Endangered Species Act, are you? And he said, I think we're going to improve it. And oh, dear. What, what a, yeah, what a liar. I mean, that's what I hate about politics so much is that these guys just say one thing and then do something else. You know, it's like you can't trust them at all. And I don't think that's confined to just the Republican Party. I hate to say it, but I think that, and I'm not speaking on behalf of Cottonwood right now, but I think that there are plenty of Democrats that, um, are scared to tell the truth because they're afraid they might upset anybody. Because the Dems are supposed to be the party of inclusivity and, you know, it's all hold and hands and sing public, kumbaya. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's not working out. You can't just make, can't, it's impossible to make everybody happy. So you got to, you know, say what you believe. And inevitably you're going to upset people. But you know what? That's life. Yep. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the old Indian expression that he speaks with fork and tongue. Um, you'd run into that way too much. Um, any other aspects of this that you would, for example, if, if you have a, a young person who's thinking of getting into, uh, shall we say, environmental law, what would you recommend? What, what, uh, is there any way to prepare for that? Or is it just, you know, love the out of doors and go to law school? Or uh, I think there's good ways not to prepare and that would be to do it because it's the hot topic it's the latest fad or vogue or whatever like do it because you're really passionate about it like um when i got into law school my dad was so excited he said this is amazing you're going to be able to retire in 20 years and i just kind of slapped my forehead and dad you just don't i'm not going to law school to make money you know and so just make sure you're going to law school for the right reason. And if you want to make money, go practice corporate law. It's fine. You do whatever makes you happy, you know. But if you want to protect the environment, make sure you have gotten out there and you've seen it and you have it in your blood and you know what you're there to protect. Yeah, exactly. That's It's something you feel rather than you calculate. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Really appreciate the time you've taken to talk with us about it. And this, these are kind of, if we wandered into a lot of individual topics, 
uh, we could, could easily spend hours. Um, before we go, maybe one last question, topic-wise. Um, how does climate change impact your legal approach? I mean, what what are what are the aspects of climate change that get into your court cases, or don't they? I mean, uh, climate change impacts everything. It's the most existential threat facing humanity. So if you're not thinking about climate change. I don't know where you're at, maybe the moon or <laughs> I don't know. But, um, yeah, with climate change, you got white bark pine trees dying in high elevations. And when the pine trees die, it means that one of the major food sources for grizzly bears is gone. And so now all of a sudden grizzly bears go from high alpine areas down low because they're looking for food. And all of a sudden they get into cows and sheep and whatever else goes. Yeah, and they switch to elk, which yeah, yeah, yeah. is their primary food source now. And so it impacts everything. It impacts habitat, impacts snowpack for recreation. I mean, it impacts everything. You don't have to just be a wildlife lover to appreciate the fact that climate change is changing everything. Our snowpack is just not what it used to be. It's scary. You know, we have glaciers that are melting. We have sea rise. Who knows if... Florida and California are going to be around in a few years. You know, I mean, it's it's everywhere. And I think that for so many of us, it just feels so overwhelming. We don't even know where to start. It's such a major issue. And so I would say just um, don't be overwhelmed by the totality of the issue. Focus on one small thing that you can do. And just go with that. And whether that's trying not to use trying not to use plastic bags because they're fossil fuel laden or whatever, you know, just one small thing and just feel good about that. And don't avoid it either because I think that's another way people respond to climate change is I can't fix it, so I'm just going to avoid it and act like it doesn't exist. It's too big for me, so I'm not going to do anything. Well, that mentality is not going to help anybody. So just take one small bite and go with that, you know, because mm -hmm. we're all in this together. We all got to work on this together. Mm -hmm. Now you sound like somebody is running for office. <laughs> yeah. um, I know it's for a fact that you you entertain or at least thinking about the idea of running for governor. Where, what do you, where are you at right now on that? Yeah, so I ran for U.S. House twice and I lost. Um, I won three public land lawsuits. And I got overturned three times by Steve Daines. And um, I said, you know, I eat, sleep, and breathe federal law. I would love to run against Steve Daines, but he wasn't up at the time. And so I've been um, thinking about running against Daines for years. And then my wife and I just had identical twin boys uh, a couple months ago. <laughs> and so... Yeah, that's um, a congratulations. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And... Um, it's just, now is not the right time for me to be flying back and forth from Montana to D.C. every week with two boys. I don't want to do that to my family. Um, so with that being said, I have a lawsuit against Governor Bullock to let Yellowstone Bison out of the park. To I want, I want to, we want to reintroduce, restore Montana. We want to see bison everywhere. There used to be millions of bison in Montana. And now we don't have millions of bison all over Montana. And so Steve Bullock is in a very unique position to be able to do that, to put bison all over 
Paradise Valley, up in the CMR, everywhere. And he won't do that. And so as I think about uh, my duty and how I can be most um, helpful to the public, I think that maybe running for governor would, uh, that could be it. Mm -hmm. Would you vote for me? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm committing early, you know, might change my mind, but, you know, no, the honest thing is that we're we're looking for people that are wanting to run for office for the right reasons. And we realize that nobody is going to come up and is 100% what you want because there's maybe we don't even know what we want, but I don't what we don't want. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, your approach to things is the kind of thoughtful, I won't say liberal, that's a bad word maybe here, but nonetheless, you are in favor of advocating for things that normally don't find a voice. And that's... Um, it feels like our political system has become so polarized. I think it's fair to say. Right. You guys are Absolutely. all saying yeah. yes. Um, and so I'm scared of running as a Dem because I think that you automatically are going to lose a huge voting block. And I think if you run as an independent... People are at least willing to hear you out, and that means you got to um, go out and collect a bunch of signatures and do a bunch of that stuff. So, um, I've got a couple cases right now outside of Cottonwood that I'm hoping to settle, and then maybe we can uh, get going with collecting signatures and running as an independent. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So well, Montana's an independent state. People, I think like so. It, yeah, it is. It's about a third. And I wish you yeah. know people in Montana seem to want to get away from knee-jerk politics. Absolutely. In other words, I've been conditioned to vote this way, and I don't listen. I don't think. We want to get away from that. Mm-hmm. No more. So I have I have one more thing I want to talk about before we end. Um, I've got a case right now. I was involved in a a ski accident at Big Sky Resort in 2015. And I got life flighted to Billings Clinic, and I spent about a week in a coma. And then after that, I spent another week at the Billings Clinic, and then they took me to the Missoula Hospital for a couple weeks. And uh, at that time, I had health insurance, and I had a max out-of-pocket deductible of $6,000. And I hit that, and then some in Billings. And then I transferred over. And when I got out of the hospital, my peel box was just full of um, notices saying, hey, you got to pay these medical bills, all these doctors, blah, blah, blah. And um, at one point I had my second failure for notice to pay. And I was like, wait a minute, the date is when I was laying in a hospital bed. I can't pay my second notice when I'm in a hospital bed, you know? So the entire healthcare system is just crazy. It's just nuts. Um And so I got this case masking the federal judge in Missoula to change the entire health care system so that when you pay the health insurance company, they bill you after you go to the hospital. Right now, all these different doctors bill you, and it's in-network and on-network. It's just a mess. And I have got creditors that ruin my credit score, and it's just a disaster. And that wouldn't have happened if the healthcare company would have billed me once. Mm-hmm. And so Billings Clinic actually owns Missoula Clinic. So when I had paid my max out-of-pocket billings, I should have covered the whole Missoula state too, but it didn't. Missoula came after me for this whole new 
they barraged me with a bunch of new bills. And so I'm asking the judge to say, hey, stop letting all these doctors, stop making them bill me and just make the one healthcare company bill me one time. And so that's not universal health care by any stretch of the imagination. But I think it's one way to get towards ensuring that we don't have a bunch of bills and all sorts of... Yeah, I think there's a movement nationally. It's called No Surprise Billing or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Because this is a national problem, which most health care issues are. So, Do you think that um, the folks I've talked to in Montana, the voters, seem to like this idea of choice? They don't like being told what they have to do. And they don't like this idea of, like, Medicare for all. Like, we have to have a government health care plan. People I've talked to said, we like the idea of being able to purchase private health care. It's just the idea of having a choice is nice. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I'm not going to, you know, whatever. But I, the people I've talked to, again, really like the idea of choice. And so what if you have this sort of public option where you can say, I'm going to give 20, 30, 40% of my paycheck and have health care whenever I need it, provided I don't have to think about it, I don't have to deal with doctors and billing and all that. But it's not mandatory. Nobody has to have that. It's a choice. What do you think about that idea? Yeah, that's I, several of the candidates uh, for the Democratic presidency are um, pushing that point of view in one way or another. I mean, they cover a broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's part of what they call the incremental improvement of whether you do it under the, the umbrella of the ACA or you do it in a separate program. You remember the, the Democrats wanted to add a public choice option. That was in the initial plan. And then they didn't have the votes for it, so they didn't do it. Hmm. But it's one of those, yeah, we could do that. But then we could do a lot of things if people agreed on it. And mm-hmm. that's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that sounds, that sounds like a, a reasonable option. I mean, is that like... Um, you know, there's Medicare for all, and then there's Medicare for all who want it. So is that more what you're getting at there? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So That's people, another option. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And I, I think, you know, people are so afraid of losing their uh, private insurance, um, which I find so ridiculous. It's like I have never, and I worked for the railroad. We had great, great insurance, but... I have never had a conversation with anyone who said, God, I love my insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> I have just never heard anybody defend their company like that. You know, to, and, you know, that's the big argument against it is people don't want to give up their private insurance. But, you know, for the most part, the people I know are very unsatisfied with it. People seem like we're always scared to change as humans, you sure. know. Yeah. It's easier to deal with the devil you know than when you don't. And so, yeah, change is always uncomfortable. But at some point, it's going to have to give, you know. I mean, you yeah. got these guys making $10, 20000000 million per year bonus CEO of a healthcare company while people can't afford to, right. you know, it's right. crazy. Yep. And, the, and the confusion in billing, like you were saying, I think that's that's terrible, you know. And it's like... Particularly people, elderly people, when you're dealing with Medicare, you might have private insurance, and um, and and maybe VA benefits. So you're 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 getting billing from everybody, and you never really. Well, that. No, well, at what point do you finally pay for this? You know. That's a swamp. 
Yeah. Well, anyway, you can tell that John is into a lot of different things, which most of us are. Um, I think the interesting kind of comparison when you look at healthcare and the environment, they are actually the same kind of problem. They are involve the entire public, everybody. And even though in, in let's say, environmental, you're picking up a piece of it, like endangered species, and on healthcare, you're talking about billing. These are all part of the same thing that we're unhappy with what happens to most people. We all have negative experiences on both sides of this. And you, you're, you know, you're obviously thinking about these things. They're part of your life, so. John, there's one aspect of this that we haven't talked about, which I'm sure, well, it's important. It's called money. <laughs> uh, you don't exist in a vacuum. You have a family, a couple of new kids, <laughs> and uh, you have things that you need to do. Uh, how does your how does your organization fund itself? What what do you do, and and what's the reality of bringing court cases on environmental issues in Montana? Yeah, it's um. It's always a challenge. I started Cottonwood uh, by living in a yurt without running water or electricity. I didn't pay rent. The folks who own land said, you cut our firewood and we'll let you stay for free. And that's how I saved money to get Cottonwood up and running. And now I have two sons and uh, we can't eat karma. So we are dependent upon uh, the public to donate. So people can become a member of Cottonwood, donate one, two dollars a month. And uh, it just small amounts of money really adds up we really like uh diffusing our our sources of where we get our money so that we can yeah do good for everybody in the public so if you want to donate um become a member of cottonwood it's www.cottonwoodlaw.org okay yeah i imagine you also get some foundation help and individual donors and that kind of thing, too. Yeah, so if you know of any foundations that want to mm-hmm. support Cottonwood's work, they can contact us at uh, info at cottonwoodlaw.org. Uh, if you know any um, private donors that like our work, uh, I was just uh, talking with some friends. Uh, we not only do habitat work on federal land, but we're starting to reach out to federal tribes, um, like the Crow, the Northern Cheyenne. A few years back, I helped... The Northern Cheyenne secure a grant for $50,000 to study renewable energy on their land. I like to work with the Crow. I'm working with the Crow to try and develop some renewable energy on their land, some opportunities. So, yeah, if you uh, want to help some Native Americans and some um, some really public interest-minded um, public servants, get a hold of me, please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And uh, Dixie, any other questions? Or I think um, I'd just like to say thank you for coming in. We really enjoyed talking with you and meeting you. And thank you for look forward me. to hearing more from you. Thank you. Well, thanks to John Meyer. That's uh, he's a good example of somebody who is a lawyer, but doesn't act or think like one. Meaning that he comes off as another person who really is just bothered by a lot of things that we're all bothered by. Politics being one of them, and politicians, and people not telling the truth, and having to deal with both his health care issues, which everybody has, and the environment, which of course was the main theme of what we talked about this afternoon. But um, his, his approach is 
what authentic is that the word i think it's it was very authentic and um and you know the work that he's doing is um it's really good to know that someone's um taking up those cases and and being an advocate in the way that he's doing it is dedicating his his life to it basically yeah dedication might be a key word there that he said that if you're going to be a young person and get into the environmental legal profession you got to be dedicated you have to love the out of doors and animals and other things and be dedicated to the law and i think he is that's something that stood out in the interview um, it's interesting to, to, to work with people who are actually public spirited <laughs> yeah and i think you know that 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 um non-partisan approach that he has, that he, you know, when he mentioned it's a lot of these issues aren't necessarily a Republican or a Democratic issue. They're, you know, people issues. We all, you know, we all live on the same planet. And, and I think that's maybe why he's so effective is because he doesn't make these political issues. Well, it's good to have somebody out there advocating for you who's not working with a, well, commercial or political agenda, so... Many thanks to John. Thanks to all of you for listening to A Podcast Runs Through It. And uh, till next time, thank you. <laughs>